As we jump into 1 Corinthians, uh, again, we're going to be in uh, chapter 10. And you know, one of the most challenging things uh, about our faith, uh, about just uh, our, our walk with the Lord, about uh, living out uh, our beliefs, our convictions, one of the most challenging things for us is just simply remaining faithful. How do we, as people, sinful people with weaknesses and temptations, how do we remain faithful? We know that we have a faithful God. We know that he's going to always stay 100% completely loyal to us because he's promised himself that he would be faithful. And yet, even though we're, we know that and we're convinced by that, we know of his faithfulness, we know of his love for us, we still have a hard time ourselves then reciprocating that and being faithful to him. It is such a challenge. It is a daily challenge for us. It's an hourly challenge for us. We oftentimes uh, don't do it purposefully, to use that in the, the strictest form of the word. We don't go out there and blatantly say, I'm going to be unfaithful to God. But we slowly, subtly find ourselves drifting. Uh, slowly kind of maybe going down a, a, a subtle slope of unfaithfulness being wooed or maybe being mesmerized by certain things that draw us. Our, our eyes get drawn to some other thing. Our attention is distracted. There's a slow shift for us. Maybe we get complacent or we get a little too relaxed in our faith. We assume maybe that everything's okay in life. Yeah, life is going pretty good or you know, we're just kind of cruising. We start to justify things. Or maybe we just start to not notice the things that are starting to drift in our lives because we just we look like the world around us. Or maybe we look like other Christians that are around us even. And so we think, oh, this must be okay. There's, they seem to be doing okay. I'm doing okay. And so we slowly just kind of find ourselves in this place. It's kind of like you know, the old analogy about a, a frog being boiled in a, a kettle. You know, If you just put a frog in a kettle, he just jumps right out. But if you slowly bring him to a slow simmer... He'll get comfortable, he'll think it's a jacuzzi, a little hot tub, a little relaxation, all of a sudden he's dead. That's kind of what happens to us. We, just, we get warmed up to the idea of the different things in our life that we justify, that feel good in the moment, but after a while we realize we've been in far too long. And so we don't do this, we don't set out to do this on purpose, but it happens. The Bible uses a word to describe this, the Bible uses the word idolatry, this idolatry thing happens in our life. We start seeing other things that draw our attention. Slowly but surely, they draw our affections, our cravings, our desires, our passions, our love, and eventually our worship and our devotion. So today we'll be looking at idolatry as Paul gives the Corinthians now a, a command. He's gone through a couple chapters of some uh, descriptions of things and some uh, analyzing of their culture. And now he's going to give them a command, a command given in light of his charge for them, in part to, to enter into the world in a meaningful way, to put aside uh, some of the things that they have previously lived in. But he says to get involved in the world in a very cautious way as well, with eyes wide open, with their minds and their hearts being guarded, so that as they jump into this world in a meaningful way, in a deep way, a profound way, uh, they would also not fall into idolatry. So let's pray, and we'll be in chapter 10, verse 14, uh, continuing really where uh, Pastor John Duarte left us off two weeks ago. 
We're going to ask the Lord that he would lead us into truth today. The Holy Spirit would lead us into truth. And one thing that I asked uh, those of us who were praying before service, I asked them to specifically pray for for us, is that sometimes we go through a sermon like this, and we might hear a list of idolatries or, we, or certain things, and we go, oh, yeah, those are, that's a good list of do's and don'ts, Pastor. Oh, yeah, those are bad, those are bad, those are bad. I don't want us just to hear and see a, a, a list of idolatries or whatever it is and just it becomes something that is informative for us. I asked, us, I asked these guys to, to pray specifically for us today that we would stop at, at every one of these items and take inventory for our own selves. Not just educate ourselves on what is idolatry, what are forms of idolatry, but that we would actually really take to heart, is this me? Do I do that? Where do I do that? I, and go into this sermon. I'm going to ask you to go into this sermon assuming that almost everything I say, every little list, every bullet point item that I bring, I want you to assume that you already live somewhere there. Don't come in assuming I'm good and maybe one or two will make sense. Go in assuming, look for it. Let's go hunting this morning. Let's assume that every single one of these things pertains to us. We've got we to look for these things. We can't just wait for them to happen and go, oh, yeah. No, we need, to go, we need to go hunting this morning. So that's what I'm praying for today for us, that we would go hunting this morning for these idols. We wouldn't be passive. And if it just happens to make sense, oh, that's, you know. No, we, we want to we look for it. We want to find it, and we want to destroy it. So let's pray now and ask the Lord that he would do that for us, that he would help us, that he would lead us and guide us into his word and into truth today. Heavenly Father, your word is alive. It is powerful. It is life-changing. It is sin-killing. And we need it this morning. We need the light of Scripture to go into the, the parts of our hearts that uh, we have little idols set up in the corners of our hearts, maybe locked away in this little room or in that little dark corner. Maybe we don't see the idols because they're uh, hidden behind some cobwebs in our heart, areas that we just don't go to. We don't clean that place out very frequently because we're afraid to find something there. Or maybe we already know it's there and we just don't want to deal with it. So we've been ignoring that part of our heart, that part of our life, that part of our mind. But this morning we need the light of your scripture, of your word, to go into those places of our heart and, and expose those parts of our heart. Bring freedom. Bring truth. Bring hope. Bring change to parts of our life where we need deep change. I know there's a lot of fear when this topic of, of idol hunting comes up because we are afraid of what we're going to find. We're embarrassed of what we see, and so we just kind of close the lid and hope that no one else saw it. But Lord, we don't want that this morning. We, we want to be free from the bondage and slavery of sin, of idolatry, the false empty promises that these idols give us. These idols are slave drivers. They whip our backs when we don't give them what they want. 
They hunker us down with condemnation and guilt and shame and embarrassments, false identity, and we want to be free from that today. So help us, Holy Spirit, lead us into this truth. Help us to walk in freedom, to walk in light, and to feel both the light and the, the heat, the warmth that you give us as you bear witness to the truth of Jesus in our hearts through his word. We love you. We thank you, Father, for giving us your word, giving us your son, and giving us the spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and ask all these things. Amen. Let's read uh, chapter 10, verse 14 here, 1 Corinthians. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, isn't it, is it not a uh, participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break... Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Aren't those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? So what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you to be participants with demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Paul begins verse 14 with this word, therefore, and I know that Pastor John brought this up a couple weeks ago. And we've known this before, as I've mentioned, that anytime you see the word therefore, you have to ask yourself, what's it there for? Why is Paul saying now what he is saying? Well, we have to know what this section, why is it, what's it there for? So to do that, we have to go to the previous section. Because this word therefore just simply means in light of everything just said. Therefore, now this. And some other ways we put it in our church before is because of this, then therefore this. So we have got the because, the motivation, the reason, the purpose, and then the therefore, the command. Another way to put it that we've said before is the indicative and the imperative. This is what's going on. This is what is being indicated to us, shown to us. And because of this, this now becomes our motivation. We don't just want empty commands because then we would just be driven by the law. There's do's and don'ts, but we have reason for why we're about to embark upon what we're about to embark upon. So we have to look at these reasons. The command comes after the shown and revealed motivation. So that means to understand the command that's coming that we're reading to flee idolatry, we have to understand what was said. What is the motivation for us to flee idolatry? The last couple chapters have been primarily about various aspects of idolatry. Paul's given us instruction on how to adjust our consciences in a world that can easily sway us and bring us into aspects of idolatry, particularly to those who are trying to avoid certain idolatries from their past. So he's covered a bit of that and helped us walk through the the minefield of idolatries. He's addressed the mandate then also for us to still become all things to all people. 
to go into this world, to not, not uh, be reclusive Christians, bubble-living Christians, head-for-the-hills Christians, let's uh, hide-and-shelter Christians. He says, no, we can't do that. That's not what we're here for. If that's the purpose of your existence, then as soon as you get saved, I would have raptured you up to heaven. But I've left you here for a reason. It's not to go shelter in place. It's to be an effective witness. So he's addressed that mandate for us to become all things to all people. But in that, he doesn't want to do that haphazardly. He just tells us, just go, just go, figure it out. No, he says, he warns us to be wise in adjusting our conscience and becoming all things to all people, being careful not to fall prey to the enticements of the world. And then he spends verses 1 through 13 that John took us through, giving real examples of how the Jews give us a, a sad warning of what happens when we're not wise, but rather foolish in how we live in the world around us. And so now because of all that, because of all that that he has shared with us, now he says, therefore, therefore, flee from this idolatry. And since some of the earlier questions were on foods being offered to idols that the Corinthians brought up, Paul alludes to the kind of celebratory food that Christians are to engage in, and that's the Lord's Supper, as this way of reminder of what we've been called to and called to do as we aim to flee idolatry. So he says this again, looking at verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, isn't it a participation in the body of Christ? The bread that we break, isn't it a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. Now we're going to go into more detail on the Lord's Supper in a couple of weeks because Paul's going to pick up more of his thoughts there and go into more detail. But here he starts to begin to make his case that we need to be on guard against idolatry in our own lives, not crossing the line into sinful living and going astray, going wayward, being unfaithful because we partake in the Lord's Supper. Because we drink from the cup of blessing each and every week. As a family, we drink from the cup of blessing from God Almighty. And so because of that, because we're partakers, because God has made us one with him as well as with each other, then we need to flee from the idolatry that rails against that cup of blessing. And that's one of the many reasons why we take communion every single week. It's, it's to have that reminder for us of what God has called us from and into and that gives us motivation to then flee from the idolatry that wars against that. And this is why he brings this up. because, And he's, he's tying in those, those, uh, those uh, discussions about food being offered to idols. And so he says, listen, I want to tell you about a different cup, a different kind of uh, food offering, a sacrifice. It's this cup of blessing that you partake in every single week. We drink this cup of blessing each week and we break bread as an act of communion, not only with God, but with each other. There are many of us, but there's only one bread, one body. Though there are many of us, there's only one body of Christ. So we have this very sober reminder that we've been called by God out of darkness and into light and eternal salvation. We've been called to be children of light, not children of wrath any longer. We commune together as a family in celebration and in memory of what our Father did by sending his only begotten Son to die for enemies, to die for sons and daughters of disobedience. And we participate in that cup of blessing, the breaking of that bread each week 
to celebrate that we've been made to be part of the body of Christ now. But he gives the example of the Jews who are called to be his people, set apart by him. But then, by example, they didn't incarnate themselves into the world in a meaningful way to live alongside people and, and be lights and salts and heat and warmth to, to influence them. They actually married into the world, physically and spiritually. They married their beliefs and intertwined it with pagan beliefs. And actually even married non-believing, took non-believing spouses. And now they, they muddled up their faith. They became unfaithful to God. They were not the influencers in the world. They became influenced by the world. And so he gives them to us as a, a warning. They, went, they, they aimed to go into the world and, and to incarnate themselves and be a blessing, but the world overtook them. And they married into it. They became one with the world. Rather than maintaining their oneness with God Almighty, they became one with the world. And so, as a preventative reminder for us, we take communion every week to, to remind her that we're in this world, but we're not to be of this world. Though we incarnate ourselves in this world, we're not to become one with it. We incarnate ourselves, we become flesh and blood to this world, but we don't become one flesh and blood with this world. Rather, we're reminded that we've become one with Christ, our Lord, and his body. This is why he says there's only one bread, and there's many different people, there's only one bread, and we partake in this one bread, and we become part of this true bread. Now, he goes back into a previous argument that he made. If you recall from earlier, he said, maybe a month or so ago, that when people offer their pagan sacrifices to false gods, he wants everyone to know that there's really no such thing as those gods. Those gods don't really actually exist. You remember that from maybe two months ago, I think? We were talking about the conscience. And he says, look, th- these gods don't really actually exist. Now, there's, no, there's no god of prosperity. There's no god of fertility. These, these names that people put on them, they have names for them. They've got... Uh, They've got temples for them. Those gods don't really actually exist. So here's what he says. He's going to reinforce that idea. He says, so what do I imply them? I know what you're thinking. You're asking, so what are you saying, Paul? Are you saying that the food offered to idols is is actually a thing? That an idol is actually real? He says, no. And you can tell he's almost saying, like, no, I've already covered that. But what I am saying, though, what I do imply is that what the pagans sacrifice... It's not going to real, actual entities that are gods. Those gods don't really actually exist. But they're actually going to demons. And those demons exist. And they're not going to God, and they're not going to small g gods. They're going to demons. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. He's saying when the pagans make their sacrifices, it's not to God, surely. But it's not to the God of fertility or the God of success, because... That God doesn't exist. But he says there are demons and they're wearing masks. They dress themselves up as if they're the God of fertility or success or popularity or money. These demons would love to lead you to believe that they are actually gods and they have this great power to give you anything you want as long as you feed them. They would love for you to believe that lie that they've got that kind of sovereign power They're the God of fertility. 
They're the God of comfort. They would love for you to think that they actually have that kind of sovereign power, but they don't. They're demons masquerading as gods. It's false. It's, it's all just fake. And he says, I don't want you to be fooled by that. So look what he says in verse 21. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This cup of demons, meaning this, this offering of thanks, raising your glass up, cheers to the God of comfort. Giving this offering of thanksgiving, this celebration Worshiping these various idolatries we go after. In your notes, you can follow along here. I have just kind of a, a basic definition for our purposes of an idol. Anything deemed necessary for happiness or fulfillment. It's not, it's, it's not a carved thing like we might think of, maybe. And Ezekiel talks about idols that are set up in our hearts, invisible things. Things that, that our hearts set themselves upon. Anything deemed necessary by our own standard for happiness. What do you think is necessary for happiness or fulfillment in your life? What is so important to you? What, what do you think is needed for you to be happy and fulfilled and satisfied? It's anything that replaces or robs devotion or love for God. Anything that's pursued by you in order to give you something that's meant to be given to you through Jesus. And I could add another paragraph on to define what an idol is. 1 John chapter 2, John says this, All that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world's. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The desires of the flesh, the, the desires of your eyes, the pride of life. What gives you pride in life? What do your eyes desire? What does your flesh desire? Those are your idols. So here's some attitudes or desires that help expose our idolatry. This is where we're going to be doing some idol hunting here. And here's my little disclaimer for you. If your knee-jerk reaction as I go through some of these lists, if your knee-jerk reaction is, you know, you kind of get that feeling, ooh, that, that's me. But then your reaction is, well, yeah, but... And you start figuring out a way for why what I just said doesn't actually relate to you. You know, or maybe it's the, the classic, well, well yeah, yeah, but this is different, right? That one that we, we love, that phrase, well, this is different. I know that sin, but this is different in my life. I mean, if you knew the context of my life, if you knew the spouse that God gave me, then you would understand. If you knew my kids, you would understand why I get so irritated or, why, you know, whatever it is. If, if you feel that little tinge of conviction and you want to push back in your own minds, or you want to push back upon me, I'm just telling you, I want you to listen. I want you to pay attention to whatever that thing is that just kind of hits you. Don't harden your heart towards it. Don't build a wall around it. Don't blame shift. Don't excuse. Don't justify. Just pay attention. Pay attention. Take it to heart. Assume that you need to hear this. So some of these are in your notes here. The first one, these are, these are ways we expose some of our idols. These might not necessarily be our idols, but they're the ways that we expose, that we go idol hunting. First one is coveting. 
wanting what others have. Maybe it's a home. It's the size of the home, the style of the home, the amenities, the comforts of the home, the furniture that's in the home, the paint, the appliances, the location, the amount of land, space, the neighbors. You start seeing some of your friends and where they live, where they're moving to, what they're able to do, the deal they're able to put together, and you start coveting. You just think, oh man, that would be nice if I could just have that. Maybe it's the income that you have or the income that you don't have. Start seeing someone else with the same qualifications or less, and they maybe make more money or at least appear to make more money. And you start wishing and pining for that. Or maybe it's a type of job. You wish your job was just a little different. You had more freedom in your schedule. You worked more. You worked less. Worked closer. Had a different boss, different employees, different coworkers, whatever it might be. You, you wish there was less stress. You wish that you had less stress, like your buddies got less stress. Oh, that'd be nice. Well, if I mean, yeah, if we had that kind of job, then yeah, we would be able to do this or this or this. Maybe it's coveting someone else's spouse. And I don't mean even in a, necessarily in an adulterous type of way, that that's definitely one way. Lustfully looking after someone else's spouse, their husband, their wife. I mean, also wishing that your husband was something that he's not. Wishing that your wife was different and would act more like your buddy's wife. Just wanting them to be a different person, have a different personality, to have different hobbies, different traits, different personality, whatever it might be, you, just, you wish they were a little different. You're coveting. You're either coveting a real-life person or you're coveting a make-believe person. You just wish they were different. Maybe it's vacations or social lives, hobbies, interests. Maybe it's a certain gift or, person, or, or personality or a talent that somebody has. Maybe covet just how talented they are. You wish that you had those same kind of talents. Remember that Paul also tells us that the hand should not desire to be the foot. That the hand has a unique role in the body of Christ. The foot has a unique role in the body of Christ. You're different from the person you're coveting, and there's a reason for that. Maybe it's different comforts. Maybe it's the car that you have. Or it is maybe a flat or, or maybe, you know, you've got, uh, your, your friends have parents or neighbors who babysit all the time, and they get to go on date nights all the time, and you never get to do that. So you covet that. If you say things to yourself with that little tinge of, of sarcasm or cynicism that's, well, that must be nice. Whatever that thing is, any one of those things I just said, if you ever say that to yourself or to your spouse, <laughs> that must be nice, you're revealing idolatry. And don't just excuse it. Don't just move along. Take that to heart. The next one is hardness of heart. That reveals our idolatry. Maybe you've got bitterness towards circumstances. Might be financial circumstances. Maybe it's health or schedule, family dynamics, relational conflict, but you've got a bitterness towards something that is in your life or something that has been a part of your life. And there's a frustration. And sometimes, you know, it's just, it just kind of lingers. It's always there. Maybe it doesn't overtake you. 
but there's just this constant stress and anxiety over some kind of circumstance, and you've got a bitterness. You're, you're angry. You know, I don't even know who you're angry against, but there's just a bitterness. Maybe it's a bitterness towards certain people. And I want you to really think about this. Think right now, in this moment, let your mind be running free right now, that your mind would bring to mind, that's what your mind, mind bring to mind, that your mind would bring to itself people that you have some bitterness or resentment towards. Something they did, maybe recently, maybe five years ago, and something just bothers you. You wish that you would finally get an apology from them. You wish that they would finally realize what they did against you. You've just been holding on to that thing. But you're not saying anything, or maybe you are, but you know, you're just kind of keeping it, and, and you've got this bitterness, and you're, you're letting them have free rent in your brain. You're being deceived by that cup of demons, that if you hold on to this bitterness, that's going to make it better. That's going to justify somehow. Think. Think about resentment. Maybe it's jealousy towards them. Maybe it's an unforgiving heart. Maybe they really actually did something that they should not have done. Maybe they haven't said, I'm sorry, forgive me. Maybe they have, but yet you still have not actually forgiven them. Pour out that cup of demons. Maybe it's fault finding. You easily find faults in others before your own. As an example, maybe you've thought of a lot of other people during this list that I've just given you, and yet you have not ID'd yourself yet. There's a good chance that you've just revealed your own idolatry. You know, maybe you listen to sermons with other people in mind. Ooh, I can't wait to give this. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to send this to my friend. They really need this. My spouse really needs to hear this sermon. I'm just going to email it to him. Or maybe when confronted with a certain type of sin or maybe an action that someone saw in you or an attitude of the heart someone saw, then your response is, well, well but you do that too. Or, you know, but so-and-so, what, what, have you talked to them too? Because they do the same thing. Right? It's just deflection, fault-finding. Or maybe it's entitlement. Your entitlement actually also reveals your idolatry. The feeling that you deserve different or better than what you currently have. Maybe this is a common phrase that comes out of your mouth. Are you kidding me? How many of you guys said that? That's, 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 a, that's a good one. Moms, dads, right? Kids do something. Those words come out of your mouth. Are you kidding me? There's an entitlement that you just betrayed. Are you kidding me? I deserve better than that. I deserve better respect from you. You know better. You, you know better. Are you kidding me right now? You feel like your little peaceful kingdom just got encroached upon, and so you lash out with, are you kidding me? Or are you serious? Or maybe we say things like, well, why does this always happen to me? Why me? I don't deserve this. What did I ever do to have this happen to me? Why can't I just get a break for once? How come everyone else gets that break, but, but I don't? Or maybe it's a, 
and Americanism, thinking that the American dream is your God-given birthright. How come I don't get that? I deserve this or I deserve that. That's, it's burned into our skulls from the day we're born if we live in this country. Maybe it's comfort, the desire to feel good all the time. Whenever there's discomfort in your life, you get depressed, you get anxious, you get frustrated. You do anything to insulate yourself from any kind of um, difficulty, struggle, or trial. It's a pursuit maybe of, of good self-esteem, so you just always feel good about yourself. I, I see this on, on Facebook from time to time. You see these, these memes that pop up. And I, I, I grabbed one here because I just I wanted to read it. It's, uh, you've seen these before. Avoid negative people. They're the greatest destroyers of self-confidence and self-esteem. Surround yourself with people who bring out the best in you. I look at that and I go, I don't know what kind of life that person has, but I want that life because that sounds really great. But you know what, church? That is not what we're called to pursue. I'm so thankful. Could you imagine if this quote was attributed to Jesus? Avoid negative people, for they're the greatest destroyers of self-confidence and self-esteem. Surround yourself with people who bring out the best in you. If that was his mantra, we would all be headed towards hell. Right? No, we're, we're put in this life and in this world not to avoid conflict and difficult people and to insulate ourselves and live in this little bubble of comfort. No, God puts us in and around people who are difficult. And guess what? You're one of those people that God puts you in someone else's life because you're difficult. That's, you're one of those people. You just don't think you are. And thankfully, this is not God's mentality on his role as he came to this earth, and it's not also his mentality for the church. The church is a place for negative people to come and see that God is good. This is where God draws negative people so that we can be changed in our hearts. This is why a community group is sometimes difficult and awkward. This is why sitting next to people sometimes you're not getting along with and you're raising your hands in worship and you take communion together because this is where we reconcile with each other because we deal with God. And so we don't just live our lives just worshiping the God of comfort and, and easy relationships. No, we insert ourselves into difficult relationships because we need each other. We need each other. One more here on this list, it's human approval. Maybe you've got fear of man. Maybe you want praise from others. You crave that, you desire that. You want the attaboy, the pat on the back. You want recognition. You say you don't, but you do. Moms, you work hard. Sometimes your husbands don't recognize what you do. Your kids surely don't recognize what you do. But God does. God does. And I'm not saying dad shouldn't pay attention, and I hope that someday your kids thank you. But if they don't, and they might not, God sees. Sometimes we worship what gives us value. And that thing that gives us value gives us our identity, our, our usefulness in the kingdom of God, our usefulness in the family, our usefulness to our friends, and we worship that. 
And we need that. We crave that. Maybe it's an image. You want people to think that you're the, the best wife or the best dad, the hardest worker, the best work ethic. You've got it together. You've got the, the cleanest house, the nicest yard, whatever it might be. Uh, there, here's a question I ask people, and I ask myself this from time to time too. What is it that you want people to know about you within the first hour that you meet them? What is it you kind of put as the top thing on your resume? You meet someone for the first time, what do you want them to know about you? That could be a good indicator of what you find most value in your life that could also expose your idolatry. You really want them to know this or think this about you, so you put it out there, you find a way to insert that into the conversation. That's probably the thing that you find a lot of value in, that you get a lot of usefulness out of, the thing that you hope will impress people. For me, I could offer up a a litany of idolatries that are in my heart. And if I said that I couldn't offer up a litany, then I'd be exposing my own idolatry of of, of self-image. John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. My heart is an idol factory. I battle fear of man and fear of failure. I I fall back a lot on being self-loathing. I've said before to you guys, uh, I'm like Eeyore. I easily fall into a place of despair and discouragement. Too easily. More often than I care to admit, sometimes I'm, I'm on the verge of at least feeling like I'm crumbling. Quite often, I just feel like I'm, I'm failing in every aspect of my life. That's a frequent feeling that I have. Real or imagined, it's a, it's a frequent feeling that I have. It's my perception of myself. I, I don't have a good self-perception in general. Some of my idolatries is just the perception of others. And I'd say, as I've thought about this a lot this week, not just this week, but just in general, uh, I particularly care a lot about the perception of my non-believing friends. So that thing, as far as like, what do you want people to know about you? That, that is a real thing that I have to uh, go through in my head every time you know, I take on a new baseball team or meet new neighbors, whatever it is. I, I analyze, what is it that I want them to think about me? And sometimes it just it, it convicts me. I fall prey to just wanting circumstances to be different or better or easier. When I get in those places of discouragement, I'll, I beat myself up a lot. Very low, just general self-opinion, self-critical, very self-critical. It causes me to become cynical towards myself mainly. I'm not all that competitive with other people, but I'm very competitive with myself and all these things for me, they, they expose idolatries. Things that I chase because I wrongly believe that I can't or I won't get those things from Christ. And I know that's false. I don't do it on purpose, but I do it out of ignorance, forgetfulness, naivety. I do these things because I, I feel like I need these things in order to have real happiness or fulfillment or satisfaction. And I need to remind myself, and we need to remind ourselves 
of what Paul says here. And I read this in verse 21. I read this in the first person as if Paul was writing a personal letter to me. Joby, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. This, this table of idolatry. This cup of idolatry that you, you drink this thing every single day. The praise of man, the fear of man, self-loathing. I just tip that thing back and I drink it every single day. I cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. I can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Should I provoke the Lord to jealousy? Pursuing after a mistress of these idols? Do I think I'm stronger than him? See, the problem with idolatry, church, is that most people, I'll say most Christians in particular, most of us are not saying, I, I want comfort, I want praise of man, I want, I want money instead of Christ. Most of us aren't saying that. I would guess that no one in this room is saying, I want a different spouse instead of Christ. We're not saying that. that. That's crazy. That's ludicrous. But what we are saying is I want Christ plus comfort, plus praise of man, plus a different spouse. It's not either or. And see, that's where I think that we, we very easily hear some of these idolatries say, oh, no, 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 that's not me because I love Jesus. I'm not saying you don't love Jesus. I'm saying you're wanting a double dip. You want the cup of blessing and you want the cup of demons, the cup of idolatry, the cup of praise of man, the cup of better circumstances. You just, you just want both. See, the demonic goal of idolatry is rarely to get you to choose between two gods. The goal is to entice you to live for multiple gods. The goal of idolatry is never to try to get you to decide between two. It knows that that's never going to happen. Satan's not an idiot. He knows he's not going to get you to verbally forsake Jesus Christ. But if he can divide your attention, divide your worship, dilute your worship, weaken your worship, then he's got you. Jesus says himself in Luke chapter 16, no servant can serve two masters. See, it's, it's not serving either or. He's saying you can't do it two at a time. You can't double dip. Either he's going to hate the one and love the other, or he's going to be devoted to the one and despise the other. It's just not possible. You can't serve God and money, he says. Now go ahead and substitute any other word for money there, because as the saying goes, not all that glitters is gold. Right? Money might not be the thing that entices. That's not the currency, maybe, in your life that gives you value. But what is money to you? Is it the praise of man? Is it comfort? You can't serve two masters. You can't serve two idols. You can't drink from the cup of, the, of blessing and the cup of demons. It might not be money. It might be sexual satisfaction or comfort, being wanted, desired, being useful. And remember that idolatry starts in our hearts. It's not necessarily the actions that you're doing right now that we can see and that we can hear and, we can, and those outside can perceive. It starts in the heart. The outward action is, is the fruit of idolatry. Does that make sense? So the idolatry sometimes is, is unseen. So you can have someone who looks very good on the outside. They go to church, they read their Bible, they raise their hands, they give generously, they lead Bible studies, go on mission trips, they parent well. 
They do all these things. On the the outside, they look fantastic. But there are idolatries in their hearts. The heart is this idol factory. And these secret idolatries are going in, going on, being built inside, being pumped out, growing, gaining traction. They're being fed. And eventually they will turn into be actions and words. Jesus described that. He says that some people are like whitewashed tombs, nice and clean on the outside, but filled with dead men's bones. You can look amazing. You can look fantastic. You can look like the best Christian that someone's ever met. But on the inside, there are cravings, desires, longings, dreams, fantasies, insecurities, passions that are gaining traction. They're growing in the dark parts of your heart. For myself, I can honestly say that I'm not tempted to give up Christ for any one of these things. I'm not going to sit there and go, you know what, I'm just going to pursue that instead of Jesus. But I certainly would love to have Christ plus those idolatries. I would love to have both. The praise and approval of God and the praise of man. Yes, please. The praise of this life, the the comfort of eternal life and the comfort in this life. Yes, please. I'll, I'll take that. I mean, the comfort of knowing I'm going to live forever, but then also comfort now, like, that sounds fantastic. Don't lie to me and say that you wouldn't want that too. Forgiveness from God, plus also revenge upon people who have wronged me? Yes, please. I would love that. The blessing of adoption in the family of God, plus the blessing of the American dream? Two, please. And, And while you're at it, could you supersize that for me? I mean, this, that's what we actually want, right? We're not saying we want that instead of Jesus. We, we, just, we want it all. Martin Luther said this, though. If our master was given a crown of thorns, why do we expect a crown of roses? If we look at his life, our Lord was called a man of sorrows, one acquainted with grief. And yet we expect our best life now. We expect comfort and blessing. We insist the American dream is our birthright, eating from a silver spoon, We've come to expect so much, so much entitlement in this life from a Savior who himself was given so little entitlement in this life. We expect so much. And we get so angry and frustrated and bitter when we don't get it. And we expect it from a Savior who himself was given so little in this life. We think we're above him. We think we're above our master. Here's what he says in John 13. John says, when he had washed their feet and put, out, uh, put on his outer garments and re- resumed his place, he said to them, Jesus said, don't you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. A couple chapters later, he says in John 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they they kept my word, they would also keep yours. 
But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Our idolatries, church, prove that we think that we're above our master. Anytime we complain, anytime we get bitter, anytime we wish and pine for more or different, we prove that we think that we're above our master. We bought into the demonic, idolatrous lies of the world. We have to be very wise and transparent and open with each other because we have been brought into one body and one bread together. We're in this together. This is why we commune together every single week. We need each other. We need to be honest. We need to expose our own idolatries to each other because we need the insight of the body of Christ, their experience of how they've battled through that, their encouragement. When we just don't want to hear the truth of God, someone else will, will just put the word of God in our ears. So we have to learn how to be transparent with these things. Your idols will just keep you in prison to them. And the cure for your idolatry isn't to, to, to get them. Well, if I just had the money, then I wouldn't worship it anymore. <laughs> oh, that's, no, that's not how it works. Jesus alone offers you the freedom from the enslavement of this idolatry. Augustine says this, that you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So as I close up here, I've got a couple practical things I wanted to share with you in one verse that I hope will frame up our approach to this idol hunting. In Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18, Isaiah says this, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Church, your God is going to be gracious to you. I listed off a big list of things that we probably are sitting to go, that's me, that's me, that's me. But here's the hope, here's the good news. The Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord God is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He'll surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though, the Lord, and, and though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, the Lord will give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction. Yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. And then we just hear from Jesus. He said, you call me teacher and you're right, I'm, I'm your teacher Yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes will see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way. Walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then, then, when you see your teacher and you see his graciousness, you see what he has done for you on the cross, when you take communion with one another, when you drink from the cup of blessing, when you see, taste and see that the Lord is good, then... You will defile your carved idols that have been overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter those idols as unclean things and you will say to those idols, be gone. 
You will blaspheme your idols when you taste and see that the Lord is good, that he is God Almighty, that he is the gracious God who is slow to anger and rich in compassion. When you see that, when you know that, when you believe that, you all of a sudden look at those idols that are trying to entice you, those false gods, those idols wearing masks saying, come, come, I'm not, I'm not asking you to leave Jesus, I'm just asking you just to, to, to taste a little bit of this too, just double dip a little bit. You will look at those and you'll say, be gone. You'll blaspheme them as demonic, not as something that's justifiable or okay because other people do it. And so for us, here's the practicals that I would like to leave you with today. The first thing, uh, five, this is in your notes here that I just wrote down here. First thing, if we want to hunt for these things, the first thing we have to do is, is go hunting for them. We have to look for them. Don't just wait for a happenstance to maybe expose something on accident. No, be active in your pursuit. Uh, one way that you could do this, I've got this list, these bullet points on the other side there called an idol detector test. I won't read through all of them, but just a couple highlights here. Uh, the second one, what's one thing you most hope is in your future? That might be an idol for you. It might be an idol for you. What's one thing that you most worry about losing? If you could change one thing about yourself or your life, what would it be? That, that's a good indicator of what might be an idol for you. Going down to the bottom, what do you think Jesus is not giving you right now in your life? What do you feel like he's withholding? Or what do you think is unfair in your life? Or how about this, complete this phrase, Jesus plus blank equals happiness. Go idol hunting. Don't just wander through life, but be purposeful in it. Be intentional. Second thing is to admit them. Seems obvious, but we need to admit them. We need not just acknowledge, like, oh, yeah, yeah. We need to actually admit it as sin. We need to admit it as spiritual adultery. Third thing is to confess them to God and also to others. Don't keep it a secret, because then you can go at your own pace and at your own comfort. Let your spouse know. Let your friends know. Let your community group know. The fourth thing is to blaspheme them. To look at those things and say, be gone. My God is better than that. My God is greater than that. My God is stronger than that. And then lastly, we have to learn how to replace those empty lies with gospel truth. It's not good enough just to say no. That doesn't work. You dig out that hole, put this stuff over this idolatry, you've got to fill it in with new soil, with a new plant. You don't just empty out the cup of demons, but a full cup of blessing. And you drink the gospel deeply. Don't just empty this out and then have an empty cup of blessing. Empty that one out and drink this one down to the last drop. And you're going to need some help with that. You're going to need some, the help of your friends to speak in your life, the cup of blessing, the, the accountability, the promises of the gospel, because your hard heart, your cynicism, your despair is going to say, well, yeah, I know that's the truth of God, but that's not for me, or I don't really believe it. You need someone to sit down and say, listen, I need to tell you something. I need to tell you about how much Jesus loves you, how strong he is, how he's going to get you through this difficulty. You need people like that. It's almost just like force the drink down your throat. So allow me to pray now, and I'm just, I want to ask the Lord that he would help us to really be intentional with our idol hunting, and we wouldn't just be like, hey, nice sermon, let's go into our week. Talk to your spouse, husbands, talk to your wives. Tell your wives what you learned about yourself today. Wives, do the same to your husbands. Friends, do that with your, the folks in your, your fight clubs, your community groups. Have the conversation. 
I know all of you guys want to avoid that conversation, but don't avoid that conversation. Be proactive. Let's go idle hunting. Let's ask the Lord to help us expose, admit, and blaspheme our idols. Heavenly Father, you have given us a tremendous cup of blessing. A celebratory cup that we do not deserve to drink. We have no right to enjoy. And yet you have called us to the table. We were outside in the darkness, in the cold. Sinful enemies, beggars. While you were feasting inside, feasting on your goodness, your greatness, And you open that door and you invite us in. You call us by name. And you call us son and daughter. You prepare a table for us. And you give us this cup of blessing, this this one true bread. And you invite us to be part of the one true bread, the body of your own son, And it's with that in mind, with that sobriety of heart, that we want to learn how to identify, but then also blaspheme our idols. We would not justify it. We would not excuse it. We would not ignore it. We would not feed it. We would not pamper it. But we would blaspheme our idols. Help us, Lord. We need your help. Help us to confess, not just to you, but to each other to be open and vulnerable and honest, so that we can really walk in freedom, to see those idols be weakened. We thank you so much, Lord, that the blood of your son conquers the power of this idolatry, open the, the prison cell of this idolatry. Now just give us the faith to walk out and walk in freedom. We love you, Lord. We thank you so much. And it's in your son's mighty name we pray. Amen.